a series from sometimes to a seventh or an eighth part or a fourth part into a fifth part or whatsoever, but sometimes it's actually the opposite. So for our Christmas series, I was kind of laying it out, and I, I figured I had about a four-part series and looked at the dates and where that happened, and the deeper we kind of got into planning it, we came to a conclusion it's actually the second one of a three-part series. And so I could have stretched it out into a four-part series, but if you've ever written a paper, if you think back when you were in college or high school, you ever written a paper and you're like, the teacher says this has to be 3,000 words, and I don't know if I have 3,000 words. And so you start writing sentences um, that sound like filler. They sort of sound like this. So, so in conclusion, the main point of my essay is to mainly say that the central focus of the paper has some concluding thoughts that point back to the thesis of my main paper, and therefore, to understand the predominant thought, it's important to realize that it verses back to this conclusion. <laughs> and you start writing that, and you're like, okay, now I have 3,000 words. This is great. And your teacher, meanwhile, is like, this is terrible. And I didn't want to do that with the, any parts of the series. I didn't want to make a fourth part and, and, and it just kind of be randomly. So today, what I've, what I've done is I've come up with a message today called Anticipate, which is sort of a, mm, sort of a preclude to the, to the uh, series that we're going to do. Now, this word anticipation uh, is a word that we have a sort of an awkward, strange relationship with. You know, it's something I think that um, when we say, I'm anticipating something, we, we say that usually in the sense of, I'm looking forward to something. But it doesn't, it's not always positive. Right, like I can anticipate that we're gonna get audited. I can anticipate that today at the dentist they will find a cavity and I will probably have to go back for a filling. Or even worse, I anticipate it might be a root canal. But when I think of the word anticipation, most times, my, my mind kind of goes to something that's somewhat positive. Now, for a child, there is no time of the year where anticipation is more evident than during Christmas season. If you ask a child, especially a 10-year-old child, they will tell you that probably the clock moves slower in December than any other month of the year. It just takes forever to get here. If you ask a parent who hasn't completed all their Christmas shopping and has a ton of things, they'll tell you that December moves faster than any, any month of the year. And so you, there's, it depends on your level of excitement or what you have to do. Time can move faster, time can move slow. But there's this anticipation when it comes to Christmas. I mean, we anticipate family time, we anticipate presents, we anticipate there being joy and peace on earth even for a period of time, and we anticipate uh, time off, we anticipate time to get some rest. But then there's, there comes that time, right? When Christmas comes around, and you go through all that hustle and bustle, and you get to that spot where everything, everything comes to that, that day, where, or that, that period of time, and then you get to that spot where all the presents have been opened. And, and all the meals have been had. The family's gone home. And the tree's taken down. And everything's put away. I think, man, it got, it was so fast coming here and just like that. It's all over. And those family moments, they might have been good. They might have been tense. Those presents. Some of them are good, as advertised. Some of them are in a pile that have to go and be returned. Some of them might already be broken. Some of them might have just been disappointed. And even the good ones, even the good presents, some 
roughly around the time that Mason, who's here today, Mason and, uh, and Janelle were six years old and four years old, um, we got some furniture came to our house in big, big boxes. Now, if you're a parent, you know, a big, big box sometimes is better than any gift that you can give a kid. Right? Because a big, big box you can cut out, you can paint, you can, you can make into a castle, into a fort, into race cars, whatever you want to do with it. And so we put these big, big boxes down in our basement. And our basement was this unfinished basement. Really didn't do much. There was a little bit of storage. And we, and we laid out some mats for the two kids to be able to play. And we put some of their toys down there. And so, on this one particular day, uh, both of our kids were, were downstairs. And, now, parents, probably one of the worst things is when you hear your kids playing and they're screaming like at the top of their lungs. And I can't even think right now. When you keep it down, it's, it seems like the worst thing in the world, but they're just screaming. Whether it's a good scream or a bad scream, it's like, ah, it's just shrill right through my head. There's something worse. Like when they're really quiet. And on this particular day, they were super quiet. To the point where Jen and I said, I haven't heard the kids in like an hour. That's always a bad sign. And so we're just thinking to ourselves, should we go down and check on them? When all of a sudden they hear from behind me Mason's voice say, Mom, Dad, look at us. And I look over. And they were covered from head to toe. I mean, head to toe in little styrofoam balls. Now, those, that furniture in those boxes came packed in styrofoam. Now, some styrofoam kind of breaks off into nice big chunks, but some styrofoam breaks off into these little, small, tiny, statically charged little balls. And what Mason had done is he took one of his action figures and he used the foot of it to scrape off every little bit that they possibly could get. And when I looked over at them, the two of them had big smiles and all you could see was their teeth and their eyes, completely covered in styrofoam. <laughs> and that was the worst. We followed their little styrofoam snow trail all the way down the stairs and I kid you not, it looked like a winter wonderland had hit our basement. Styrofoam everywhere. It took me at least a week and a half to clean all of it up. Because when it's statically charged, you can't just vacuum it up. It's sticking to everything. And so I had to wait till all the static actually came out of it before I could before I could clean it up. Which leads me back to my question. Can you think of a time that you made a giant mess like this? Here's the question I want you to consider. How would your parents respond if you made that type of mess? How would your parents, when you were a kid, have responded when you made that type of mess? And here's why this matters. Because how your parents react can affect how you respond to your Heavenly Father. When Jesus is teaching about God, he often uses parental terms. He refers to him as our Heavenly Father. So now, I consider myself blessed. I consider myself blessed. I grew up in a home where my dad was heavily involved, heavily encouraging, a, a part of everything that I did. And, and that in itself has shaped how I've tried to be as a dad. But I also recognize that's not everyone's experience. I remember running a basketball camp um, in, in a, a 
underprivileged area that was a free camp, and the, um, we offered this for free. And there, was, there was a registration form that was given out, and I don't know why this question was on it, but one of the questions was, uh, do both, both your parents live at home? And I'll never forget, 101, 101 registration forms, 101 campers uh, at that camp, and 99 said no. Both of my parents live at home. And I know like 90-something 90, uh, 90 percent of those homes that that single parent with a mom. That many of those kids had no male role model in their home. I remember one kid specifically, his name was Layton. I remember he would, um, he, he told me that his, his, he barely ever sees his dad. His mom has 14 kids with four different men. And his dad comes once a year on his birthday picks him up, drives him into the movie theater, and then drops him off home. So minimal talking when they even are together. And maybe you grew up in a home where your dad was present. Or maybe you grew up in a home where your dad was present physically, but that's the only way in which he was present. See, we have these pictures of our, our dad or our mom, and these pictures shape how we see God. And the reason I asked you this question earlier is, how would you respond, how would your parents respond if you made a large mess? It's because it bleeds into this next question. How do you think God will respond when you make a mess in your life? How, how do you think your Father in Heaven will respond? It's a big question. It's a big question. It's a question that we're going to kind of wrestle with the rest of our time today. And to do that, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15. Now, Luke, if you don't know, is one of the four gospel writers. And Luke was not one of Jesus' disciples. Luke hung out with the people who hung out with Jesus. And he spent a lot of time interviewing them, a lot of time listening to the stories, a lot of time asking questions. And what we do know about Luke is Luke was a physician. And so that explains a little bit why he was so detail-oriented in a lot of his, his writings. It also explains a lot why when Luke spends a lot of time when he focuses on the healings of Jesus, because it was a huge interest of him as well. But we also know about Luke, of the four gospel writers, is he's the only one that was truly non-Jewish. And so when he's writing to a non-Jewish audience, which is, explains a little bit of the style of his writing. And so in Luke 15, he begins with this. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. The statement by itself is incredibly important. Because what we learn from this is we learn that many, that through this and some of the other stories, that Jesus was different. He was different than other religious people or rabbis of the day. People who were not like Jesus liked Jesus. People who were not like Jesus liked Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. Ask yourself this question. Do people who are not like you like you? Do people who don't share your worldview or your beliefs do they like you? Are you able to maintain who you are, your beliefs, your morals, your worldview? Can you maintain that and people who don't 
to share those same things to the to the story. And so Luke says that tax collectors and other notorious sinners would come to hear Jesus teach. Now we've, got, we've mentioned before many times that tax collectors were despised. They were seen as traitors. They were Jewish people that were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes and, and, and basically do it for them. And so they would collect taxes which made the other Jewish people angry, but on top of that they would skim some off the top for themselves, which really meant they didn't have a lot of friends. And so Luke says that Jesus, when he taught, tax collectors would come here, but also sinners. And sinners is kind of this, the Greek word here is kind of a catch-all. It's the worst of the worst. It was murderers, thieves, cheaters, Montreal Canadiens fans, <laughs> people who like cats. Whoa. I just offended like one-third of the congregation. Especially people who are much more Canadian fans and not cats. <laughs> but you get the idea. People of nothing like Jesus like Jesus. Now, as Christians, especially during this season, we are supposed to be overflowing with joy. I mean, this is this is our time of year. I was there a couple nights ago. At the Elvora Christmas market, and it was it was awesome. I was walking down the street, and there was these like old-fashioned carolers out that were probably hired by one of the stores, but they were singing about Jesus, which is the only time you're going to see that happen. And so, as Christians, it's our time of year, and and everywhere we go, we should be bringing light. We should be doing that all the rest of the year too. But the question is, do people know you're a Christian because of the light you bring? Or do they know you're a Christian because you boycott and, and make it very, very known how angry you are that they dare put season's greetings or happy holidays on the front of their store? It's backwards when you think about it. Because we have a society, for the most part, that have grown up outside the church. They don't understand the meaning of Christmas. They don't know who Jesus is. So they don't put emphasis on the word Christmas because it doesn't mean anything to them. And then Christians who want them to discover the joy of Christ angrily protest, either in person or online, about the fact that they don't celebrate Jesus, who they don't know, and now they don't want to know because you're the representation that they see. See, Jesus engaged people differently. He engaged people way differently and it was much more effective. Luke chapter 15, verse 2. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. I love this about Jesus. He doesn't care about catering to the religious people. And they thought he really should. They really thought that he should. But he was laser-focused on what mattered. Those far from God. He didn't care what anybody else said. He didn't care what anybody else thought about him because he was so focused on those that were far from God. As Christians, we should follow this example. And to hit this point home, he tells a actually he tells three stories with the same point. Aside though, Luke isn't the only person who records this parable and these stories in his gospel. But the gospel writers. The Bible tells us that they had 
in Jesus' life that they could fill many, many books. And so they had to choose what was important, what wasn't important, what they wanted their audience to know. Luke's the only one who chooses to devote the entire chapter to this story. So Jesus says, let me tell you three stories. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to go through these stories very, very quickly. We've dug deeper into some of these stories in the past. But he says there's a shepherd. Now, for his audience, this was very relevant. This is very relatable. They, I understand what you're talking about right now. And he says the shepherd is a good shepherd. He has a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them. And then he asks this question to his audience, would you go look? Would you go look for the one sheep? Now, I don't know about you, but if I get 99% on a test, pretty happy with that. I'm not really one for the teacher arguing about the 1%. I'm not, I'm not worried about the 1%. That's a strong A+. Plus. But he says the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes, and he finds the sheep, puts it over his shoulders, and he brings it back, and he celebrates with his family and friends. Lost is now his family. The one mattered. He then jumps to another story of this lady who has ten silver coins, and one coin was about a day's pay. And she loses this one out of her ten coins, and, and she still has 90% of her, her money, but she turns her house upside down, and she's, she's distressed that she lost this coin, and so she finally finds it. And when she does, she gathers friends and family, and she says, celebrate with me. Celebrate my finding. And then Jesus says, okay, one more story. One more story, just in case you actually think I'm talking about sheep and coins. So I'm not. He tells one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the story of the prodigal son. And Jesus tells a story of a father who has two sons. The younger son one day decides that I am going to, I want my inheritance. Dad, I want my inheritance now. I know you're not dead, but I wish you were dead so I can have my inheritance now. Which is incredibly, incredibly upsetting to a father, but very, for a proud Jewish father, incredibly offensive. To break his heart and offend him at the same time. But this dad goes ahead and gives him his inheritance anyway. And if you know the story, you know the boy leaves home, parties it up, blows through his wealth in no time. While the money's there, the friends are there. And when the money's gone, everybody's gone. He's alone, he's broke. Jesus says the only job he can find is feeding pigs. Now for Jesus' audience who's listening to this story, they're following along, and they're in. It's an emotional roller coaster for them, this whole story. Because first of all, it starts with, there's this young son who says, Dad, I wish you died. I want my inheritance now. How dare you? They're so angry listening to this. How dare you? For a Jewish father, having sons was such a big deal because it was going to extend the family line. It was going to take their name and continue to pass it on. And he had two sons, which was a blessing. And one of them just comes along and says, no, no, I don't want to be part of this anymore. I want my, I want what's owed to me, and, I'll, and I'm taking it now. He says, they'd be so angry, so offended by what they just heard. And then, they, and then the, the dad has the gall to actually give 
of savings, and he blows it so fast. They're just infuriated. Like they, they want they want something, something bad needs to happen to this boy. And then they find out he ends up the only job he gets feeding pigs. And as a Jew, the pig was like the most unclean animal. You would not associate with pigs at all. And now you're feeding pigs is the only thing you can find? Man, this is a satisfying ending to this story. I can't think of a better way. And they're like, this is a great story. I can't wait to go home and tell my family about this story. This would be a great warning for my boys. Except the story doesn't end there. Now at rock bottom, this, this boy comes home. He like comes to the census, he swallows his pride, and he decides he's going to head home and offer himself up to his father as a servant. Luke chapter 15, verse 17, says, At home, this is the boy talking. He's talking to himself, right? He's feeding pigs, he's talking to himself. He says, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father, and, and I'll say, and this is the speech he kind of prepares for himself. He probably said, he probably repeated this over and over in, in his head, or maybe even out loud, and the whole way home. He says, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired hand, as a hired servant. Verse 20 says, so he returned home to his father. And pause there. I know what he did. I know it was wrong in all senses of the word. But can you imagine the courage it takes for him to go home and face his proud Jewish father? Imagine the amount of pride he's got to swallow and overcome. Imagine the reception he expects when he gets home. And many of you know how this story ends. But there's a verse here, there's a half a verse here that's so important because it shows the heart of God. It says, and while he was still a long way off, he's walking home. walk into a job interview, the first day of school, and you're the new kid in class. You know that, that moment where you just, you're so nervous, his heart's just beating out of his chest, he's getting home, he's getting closer to home, and he's recognizing his surroundings. He can almost smell the cooking. And he's coming up to the horizon, he starts to see his homestead. He's probably thought,
today is going to be the day only to go to bed that night disappointed. With the only hope that maybe tomorrow is the day. Maybe tomorrow is the day my boy returns. As a voice coming, approaching the house, he doesn't have to go find the dad in the fields. He doesn't have to go into the house. He doesn't have to go look in the barn. His father's waiting right there at arm's length. This boy's been a huge mess in his life. Huge. If every bad decision was a little statically charged styrofoam ball, he's got a snowstorm of a life right now. Despite that, his father is waiting with anticipation. Verse goes on to say that the father was filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son embraced him and kissed him. This was not what the boy was expecting. I don't even know if he hugged him back. He was so stunned. I mean, he expected his father to be filled with, with many things. He expected him to be filled with rage, sadness, disappointment, disgust. Imagine the surprise and the relief. When he discovers that his father doesn't care what happened, doesn't care where the money went, doesn't care about anything up to this moment, all he knows is that his son has returned and he's filled with love and compassion. And the story goes on to say that the father threw a giant celebration with food and dancing. It was the celebration type that you would give when someone graduates or, or somebody... Um, Somebody gets married or, or an anniversary. I can't imagine this scene from the, this young son's viewpoint. He had to have been stunned. I mean, as he's walking down that path, you and, you and I do this all the time. We start playing out scenarios. Okay, this could go a number of ways. I, I could get home, and my dad could find out that I'm there and choose to send one of his servants to tell me to leave. Like he's not even going to talk to me because he doesn't want to see my face. That would be bad. I, I might return home and I see my dad and when I lay out this whole thing, Dad, would you please take me back as one of your servants? He just, he just yells and screams and cries in anger and tells me to leave and never come back again. That's one way this could turn out. I'm really hoping for is I hope I come back and I hope that he has a little bit of mercy on me and he allows me to cling to his servant his servant words he allows me to stay he allows me to eat up his food and have a little bit of shelter over my head that's what I'm hoping for I guarantee you that none of the
I couldn't be happier. Let's celebrate. The beautiful part is, is that your Heavenly Father, you serve a God of mercy and grace. A God that waits with anticipation for his children to return home. Your God lays out a safe place where you're embraced, where you're loved, where you are welcomed, where you are restored. So we know this story as the we know it as the story of the prodigal son. But this story could very well be labeled the story of the prodigal father. See, I used to think this word prodigal meant runaway. I used to think prodigal meant abandoned the family. I used to think prodigal meant failure. But prodigal means wastefully extravagant. It means you spare no expense. You don't care about how your resources are used. And it, and it describes the son. Because when he had that whole lump sum of money, he went and he spent it up. Like there was no tomorrow. He was wastefully extravagant. But when the father saw his son return, he was over the top extravagant. Extravagant with his mercy. Extravagant with his compassion. Extravagant with his food, his finances, his resources, his possessions. But more importantly than anything else, he was extravagant with his love. Do you know what Jesus cares about? In the first story, where the shepherd returns with one sheep that was lost, he adds this to the end of that story in Luke 15, chapter, or Luke chapter 15, verse 7. He says, In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have it straight to heaven. Then in the second story, the woman finds the one out of ten coins and she celebrates with her friends and family and then Jesus adds this line in the same way there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner, sinner repents and then the story of the prodigal son we might be able to come join me as I wrap this up in the story of the prodigal son when the younger brother comes home Everyone is celebrating except one person, the older son. It feels like it's unfair. It feels like that they're celebrating someone who didn't deserve it. That if anyone deserves a feast, it's him, the loyal one, the faithful son. But his father puts your heavenly father's heart on display with this sentence. Maybe there's just a little bit of reprieve at Christmas time. Maybe it's something 
anticipating that there will be family time created that will create good memories. They're anticipating getting that thing on their Christmas lists. They really, really want because they won't want next year. They're anticipating sitting down to a good meal, a home-cooked meal. They're anticipating mom's Christmas Day dinner. There's so much more to anticipate. Advent means coming. We celebrate of Savior into the world that changed everything. But we also anticipate the future. That Jesus will return one day on his beautiful. The pain and sorrow will be wiped away. Because of that, we will celebrate. But it's also important to remember this as well. That while we anticipate Jesus, while we anticipate Savior, while we anticipate God in human form, He anticipates you. He anticipates your unsafe neighbor. He anticipates your unsafe child. He anticipates your co-worker. He anticipates your friends. He anticipates every person that you lock eyes with. Life of a Savior, born of a virgin, in a stable of Bethlehem to come. What matters to Him? Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. We anticipate Him, but even more so, He anticipates Father, there's a sense of anticipation around this time of year. Some of it's so temporary. Some of it's such a band-aid to cover up just some of the pain that maybe if this Christmas season or if I get this thing or if, if this goes well, then it will erase the pain and suffering in the rest of my life, but we know there's only one thing worth anticipating. That's the Savior of the world. The God is displayed in this story today because the Father is always anticipating. Always anticipating those that You always have your eyes on the horizon. And each of us has people in our lives that are far from you. And it's so important that somehow we relay this message this Christmas season to people around us that it doesn't matter what they did with their inheritance. When you stand at the doorway, God for us. Those that are part of the 99, 
Let us be part of the search party. Let us not just let the shepherd go. Let us go with the shepherd and be part of the search party for the one. And today, if there's someone who's here who feels like they are far from you, I pray that when they leave here, they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt. They're not disappointed. You're not disgusted. You're not angry. Despite whatever their family situation was, whatever their whatever reaction their parents would have given to the mess of their life, that your reaction is full of grace and mercy. For that person in here that's been strayed. Thanks for